Well, good morning. It's great to be here with you today. I, was, I missed you last week, but I, I don't if you were here, I thought uh, Pastor Bill did a fantastic job. It was a very powerful message, so thank you for that. It's always so comforting to me to, uh, to be able to be gone and not have to worry about anything. We have such a great team of staff and volunteers and, and you guys. And so, so thank you for that. Uh, I, I feel just so blessed to be a part of this church. Um, yesterday was an absolutely, I think the, the weather forecast actually said stunning Saturday, right? And it was <laughs> stunning. I mean, beautiful, beautiful weather, which at the very same time, was reminiscent of that beautiful weather that was happening on September 11th, 2001. And so I don't wanna let this moment go by on this, this 20th anniversary of the tragedy and the horrific attacks on this country. If, if you're young and you weren't born yet, or if you were too young to remember this, for those of you that were alive and aware enough, you know exactly where you were you know exactly what time you found out and what you were doing. And, and as, as those events unfolded and we all either watched it or, or some of us uh, experienced it firsthand, um, the reality is that in the midst of, of destruction and, and death and, and horror, you know, what also came out of that was amazing stories of inspiration of how people sacrificed themselves for the good of others and how people cared for one another and how people were, were drawn together in ways that, that maybe didn't even exist before. And so at the very same time, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I've spent the last several days in one way, shape or form um, looking at a lot of this, this footage and this content and, and hearing the stories of people and how they've been able to track people down and hear perspectives. And those are just the stories that we know. And they are truly amazing. And, and they continue to remind us of a deeper hope and a deeper truth, which is that giving his life for us is exactly what Jesus has done for us. And so when we think about what does that mean to follow this, this savior who very clearly says he came to serve, not to be served, you know, how, how does that reflect in our lives? That's what we're going to be struggling with and wrestling with today as we, as we have our time together. But just be thinking about that. Uh, what are the things in your life that people say about you in terms of what are you really extravagant about? What are, what are you really, let's say it this way, what are you really ex abundantly extravagant about in your life? Do people say about you, wow, that person truly knows and loves Jesus? Or are you being defined in some other way? either through the issues that you're prioritizing in your life that seem to sneak their way above the importance of the gospel, or are you living your life in an identity that's competing with that which the gospel tells us is true about us? And so in light of all of that, I know that's all, this, this, there's a lot of, of sadness, there's a lot of struggle, there's a lot of, of remembering all of these terrible things. And at the very same time, as we've been talking, we've been working our way through the Gospel of John, we've seen amazing moments 
of redemption and amazing moments of inspiration and hope. And so would you just pray with me as we get started today and in light of all that we're, we're talking about? Heavenly Father, you are our God of refuge, our God of hope. And so, Father, we turn to you this morning. And, and even though we know that maybe the kind of the initial shock and horror of the events on September 11th, 2001 have now maybe faded a little bit in our memory. Lord, we will never forget. We remember those who lost their lives on that day, the 2,977 people in New York, Washington, D.C., and in Pennsylvania. And we remember also and are inspired by these stories of sacrifice of so many selfless first responders and military personnel and strangers and co-workers and friends who laid down their lives to save others and to help rescue others. And Lord, we remember the, the families of all those who were lost that day. We lift them up to you and we ask now that you make your face shine upon them and you, you give them your peace and, and you comfort them in, in the way that that only you can. Lord, in the midst of this heaviness of sorrow and, and sadness, we also remember that our hope is in you alone. Not in us, but in you alone. And so forgive us for all the times that we get that confused, that we try to take control over everything and do it our way instead of following you. We ask, Lord, now that you lead and guide us through this time that we have together, that it be your word, that you make us instruments of your grace and mercy, and that, that we reflect in our lives the kindness and the goodness and the grace of Jesus. We give you thanks even for the gift of life and for the opportunity for us to be together right now and worship you. Lord, we thank you for the gift of life, the new life that is only possible through you, that death itself can't ever take away. And so, Lord, we pray that you give us the confidence now to turn to you and to walk, to walk alongside you in faith, in spirit and in truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the reality is, in the aftermath of the terrible events on September 11th. We then had this period of time, and for those of you that were alive and aware uh, enough when it was happening, things were different, weren't they? People actually cared for each other in ways that were unexpected. Grace and mercy were things that were abounding in the most unexpected places. You know, I don't know what your story was on that particular day, but I experienced it right away. And when I think about that in the context of where, where we are now in our lives, with all of the division and all of the politics and all of the destruction and all of the debates and how it doesn't take very long, you can pop on social media and it doesn't take more than what? Maybe three comments before there's a death threat what are we doing? Where is the grace and the mercy? And so for us, if you're a Christian, 
For us, we are called to do better than that. We are called to lead with the example of Jesus as a means of drawing more and more people to know him and to trust him and to be in relationship with him. And so one of the questions I want to just continue to ask us throughout our time together, we're going to be looking at John chapter 12, but I want to ask us, what is our response to Jesus? What is our response to the grace and the mercy, the extravagance of Jesus, the extravagance of God who sent Jesus for us? How, how do we respond? And we're going we're gonna to look at, well, there's five different kinds of ways that our, our scripture today helps us think about this. And so I want you to be thinking about, well, what resonates with you and in the circumstances of your life and what you're going through and, and whatever you might be facing? How are you responding to the grace and the mercy of our Lord Jesus? Now, remember, John, we've, as we've been through this foundation series, all the way back at the very beginning in chapter one, John describes the grace of God in the person of Jesus as grace upon grace. Grace upon grace means that it's not quantifiable. It's so extravagant and it's so abundant that we can't ever really wrap our arms all the way around it. We can understand dimensions of it as we live in light of that grace and truth. But the question really comes down to, are we? Are we living our lives in a way that reflects that grace and mercy of Jesus? And so I'm going to start with this and we'll, we'll unpack this as we go. But the generosity of Jesus should be reflected in our response to him and permeate the relationships we have with other people in the world. In other words, this is a directional thing. The grace and mercy that's been poured out on us and into us by a God who loves us enough to send his one and only son should then pour out of us in worship of this God in Jesus and also should change the way that we deal with other people whether they're people that are other believers or people that are in the world, whatever. Uh, we are called to be his ambassadors and his witnesses to the world. And I'm telling you right now that the world needs that witness now more than any time that I can remember. And so I hope that through this time, you will start to, to see yourself in, in what we're talking about here and, and that the Lord will convict you and me in the ways that we might maybe have some things uh, a little bit off, or maybe I should say our priorities a little bit uh, disordered from the way that God would have it. So we're going to go through this. But first, before we get into John chapter 12, we got to go back just for a moment into something that Pastor Bill talked about last week at the end of John chapter 11. Now, if you remember at the beginning of John chapter 11, we had this amazing thing where Lazarus, who's a close friend of Jesus, had died. And Jesus shows up on the scene, Mr. Resurrection himself comes, and he raises Lazarus from the dead. Amazing, right? Lazarus comes out of the tomb, it's to take off the grave clothes. He's, he's back, he's back, okay? That's amazing. But it was amazing for a lot of different reasons. A lot of people were amazed by this and came to have faith in Jesus and believe in what he was saying about himself and the claims that he was making. And because he had been saying all along, I have the authority over death. 
And people would, you know, I mean, somebody starts saying something like that, everybody, you and I would all be like, hmm, okay. And then somebody raises somebody from the dead. You say, okay, yeah, this guy is for real. That's a problem for the religious leaders and the Pharisees because that's also a threat. It's a threat not, now hear me, it's a threat not just to the Pharisees and their worldview and their system and their religious understanding and their political preferences. It's not just something that they're having to face. It's something that you and I have to face all the time. We are the Pharisees, okay? Now, most of us don't want to hear that. We object. Oh, that's not me. It's you. And it's me. Because that's the human problem. That, the root of it is sin. We, in the end, would like to turn inward and have it our way, like we do over at Burger King when it comes to Jesus. Okay? That's, that's what we're getting at here. And so for, for the religious leaders, uh, they, they have really started to think, okay, enough is enough. Matter of fact, at one point they say, hey, this is getting us nowhere. We got to shut this down. And so at the end of chapter 11, I just want to read a couple of verses here. It says, uh, starting in verse 55, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus as they stood in the temple courts and they asked one another, well, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. So the word is out. The arrest warrant has been issued. And now the question for the people is, if they see Jesus, when they encounter Jesus, what will their response to him be? Will they turn him in to the religious leaders and say, I found him and maybe collect a reward? Or will they fall at his feet and worship him and say, you are Savior, you are Lord, you are the Son of God? Well, that's a question for us as well. And, and just to show you how pervasive sin is, these religious leaders, uh, you know, it's not just shut down Jesus we don't want to hear it from him. Poor Lazarus gets caught up in this too. Lazarus, the guy that just got raised from the dead. Uh, we're going to get to this, but I'm going to skip ahead for just a minute. In John chapter 12, verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus. For on account of him, many of the Jewish people were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Imagine that this Lazarus guy has had a rough go, hasn't he? He already died once, miraculously back to life. Answer, let's kill him again. That's tough. But that just goes to show you the commitment that people have when their worldview or their system of understanding or what they think they believe and how things should be done, when that is questioned, more specifically, when it's threatened, people are willing to go to great lengths to silence others, aren't they? Don't we see this playing out all the time? I personally think that Social media is, is giving us an easy way to puke out the sin that's already in our life. Now, maybe we didn't have that option before. We could maybe keep it quiet or at least hidden or stuffed way down deep inside. But for whatever reason, these platforms 
seem to be the opportunity for us to just go after one another. But is that what Jesus has in mind? Is that what God had in mind for the way that we live our lives when he spared no expense and he generously gave, knowing what the outcome would be, knowing that we wouldn't have it any other way other than to crucify Jesus because we didn't want to hear what he had to say that much. And yet he sent him anyway. Folks, that's grace upon grace. That's abundantly extravagant grace that you and I can't even comprehend. So are we living in, in the light of that or are we being threatened by the same things that were threatening the Pharisees and the chief, pri chief priests? I want to be in charge. I want to be in control. I like this Jesus guy, sort of. But when he starts trying to manage my life and, and lead me and guide me in ways that make me uncomfortable, well, then that's where it ends. He's got to go. So the question is, are we looking to silence Jesus because he doesn't do things our way. If you've been a Christian, or maybe if you're not a Christian yet, you might be wondering, well, if, if I come to Jesus, then that must mean that everything is smooth sailing from that point forward. Everything is easy and I get everything I want. No, that's a genie. That's not Jesus, okay? And you can't just wish for more wishes either. Uh, the reality is that Jesus demands things of us that we not only are uncomfortable with, but we don't have the strength to do ourselves. And yet he continues to call us into that, not alone, not as orphans, but as his children, his precious children, brothers and sisters in Christ, filled with the power and presence of the Holy Spirit and living it out in the world around us. But when it comes to that idea of service, of serving others, Sometimes we can get a little bit twisted up. We can get a little bit twisted up. And so uh, if we're not maybe the religious leaders, maybe we're more like Martha. Now, Martha, we've, we've talked about before because, well, she's gotten a bad rap in the past because uh, in another uh, account in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 10, there, there's a very similar account of this kind of thing going on. So we know this happened, uh, what we're going to read about today, we know it happened more, more than once. Uh, but in that particular deal, uh, Martha was busy serving. She was making all kinds of preparations. And it says that Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to what he was saying. And Martha comes barreling out of wherever she was making these preparations. And she says to Jesus, hey, can't you tell my sister to get her act in gear here? I mean, I'm doing all the work. Well, she's sitting there doing nothing. And Jesus says, well, now just a minute, Martha. Mary is prioritizing the right thing in this particular case. And that you and I have to wrestle with because it's easy for us to take the idea of serving and start to do it without continuing to lean into our relationship with Jesus. We're missing out on the time that we should be spending to be in the presence of Jesus. And we all do this because we're overscheduled and we got everything, we got all this stuff going on. And so maybe you are resonating with 
Martha. I'm going to read the, the scripture all the way through these 11 verses, and then we're going to go back, and I want you to just be thinking about this as we go through. Uh, we've got the religious leaders that we just talked about, but now when we get to John chapter 12, I want you to be thinking about, are you like Martha? Or are you like Judas? Or are you like the crowd? Or are you like Mary? What resonates with you and what's going on in your life right now? And then we'll take a look at each one. All right, starting in verse one. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jewish people found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jewish people were going over to Jesus and believing in him. So here we have this scene where there's this dinner that's given in Jesus' honor. Now, this, this same account that we're reading in John is also told in the Gospel of Matthew and also in the Gospel of Mark. And both Mark and Matthew happen to mention this detail that the house where this dinner party is going on is Simon the leper's house. Simon the leper. Now, for those of you that, that kind of have been with us uh, along the way here, the leper, Simon, if you're identified as a leper, that, that should bring up some red flags for you. Well, the Jewish people don't have anything to do with people that have leprosy. That's unclean. There would never be a dinner party at the place where a leper lived. Okay? But here we have this party taking place here. And so it, it doesn't, the text doesn't actually tell us this, but it's, it's probably a safe assumption for us to conclude that Jesus must have healed this Simon. So he might as well be called, you know, Simon, the former leper, right? And if you can imagine this, it must have been quite a dinner party. You've got Simon, the former leper and Lazarus, the former corpse. Somebody earlier this week when we were studying the scripture said, man, a lot of dead flesh at this particular gathering. <laughs> but so we have this redemptive power of the Lord Jesus who is working in and through this situation. And there he is. There's a dinner party in his honor to thank him, obviously, for all of these amazing things that he's done and, and, and for who he is and who he continues to explain to the people that they are in relationship to him and who he is and what he's come to do. But if we don't actually take the time to tune our ear to those promises and to listen to what is going on, to be 
in God's presence, well, then we shortchange ourselves because we're busy serving and we're forgetting about the relationship that we have to have with Jesus, right? We, we must have that. In order to have this new life in Jesus, we've got to be in relationship with Jesus. There is no other way for that. And so as we get busy and as we serve, you know, you hear this play out all the time because there are lots of people that when you ask them, well, you say you're a Christian, what does that mean? And how many times do we hear the response to that question go something like this? Well, I just try to be a good person, right? I just try to be a good person. I try to do the right thing. That is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. And so when people ask, well, what, you're a Christian, what do you stand for? If your answer goes down one of these rabbit holes of all of these choices we have now to be outraged about, all of these social and political debates that we can find all of our time spending just on arguing about these particular things. Is, is that what it means to be a Christian? To take a real stand? To, to condemn other people that don't agree with us? To, to force other people to accept our opinion about whatever the right circumstance is or whatever the right approach is, whatever the right worldview is? is? Is that what we find here? No. What does it mean to be a Christian? What it means to be a Christian is to know Jesus, to trust Jesus, to tune our ears to the voice of Jesus. And what is Jesus saying to you? He's saying, I favor you. I choose you. I've come for you. How do we respond to that? That is extravagant. We do not deserve that. We do not deserve that kind of abundant grace and mercy. And yet, we have a God who calls to us and says, come to me and I will give you rest. How do we respond? Now, if we're, if we're like Martha, maybe in this particular case, again, Martha, serving is great. I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying, that somehow serving bad. No, serving is great, noble, and required of what it means to live the Christian life. It's an outpouring of the faith that we have in Christ. But if we miss that step of nurturing the relationship with Jesus, well, then we're left just going through the motions. And so the question is, are we faithfully serving, but missing out on being in Jesus' presence? It's very easy to do. Okay, so when we move on, I'm going to skip Mary, but I assure you, we'll come back to her. But for right now, we know that what has happened is, is Mary has taken this really expensive perfume. She dumped it all over the feet of Jesus. Now, if you kind of put these, all these accounts together, um, really the whole bottle, there's no way that she dumped an entire bottle on just his feet. The other accounts actually talk about uh, they, that, that, that it was applied to his head. And so think about it like this. His whole body was anointed. His whole body was anointed with this perfume. But the reason that John focuses on this little piece of Jesus uh, standing there as, as Mary wipes his feet is to let us know that, you know, the ultimate act of service here in worship to him, Mary was doing the job of the lowest, of the lowest, of the lowest tier 
Washing somebody's feet in that particular time, in that particular place, was the bottom rung of the social ladder. And so John wants us to know that detail. And we'll get back to that and, and talk about what the significance is. But in the middle of this extravagance, of this outpouring, that Mary is pouring out worship in the form of this perfume, we've got this guy, Judas. And good old Judas pipes right up. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Now, you all know people like this, don't you? You do. You might be in the middle of doing something extravagant. You might be in the middle of doing something abundant. You might be doing, in the middle of doing something because maybe, maybe it just happens that the circumstances produces this in you, but maybe it's actually the Lord that's working in and through you to be the delivery mechanism of his grace and mercy. And no sooner do you actually do it, than what happens? Somebody turns around and says, well, you know, ah. right? I spent a lot of time, this is the only example I can come up with for you. It's not a great one, but just go with me. Uh, I spent a lot of time in Chicago uh, at a former job and uh, walking around downtown at night, I was with a friend of mine and this uh, clearly troubled individual comes up and, and asks for money, right? Now, I know in my mind that I have two bills in my pocket. I, I have a $5 bill and a $50 bill. And I felt like the Lord was telling me in that moment, uh, reminding me, you might say, give to all those who ask. And I'm like, oh, all right. So I said, well, here's the thing. I'm going to reach in my pocket. And whatever bill I grab, that's what I give. Of course, I grabbed the $50 bill, right? <laughs> abundance, abundance. And so I give it to the guy and I just simply said, you know, Jesus loves you, God bless you. And, and we moved on. And, and the guy was like stunned and he, he, he was just trying to figure out what, what had just happened and we kept on walking. And I was like, wow, it was amazing to be able to just be an instrument of God's grace in that moment. And what is my friends? Well, you know, he's just gonna go out and buy booze. <laughs> but the point is, I don't care what he does with it, right? The scripture is not give to all those who ask and then follow them around to make sure that they're doing what you think they should be doing. But we like to spend a lot of time doing that, don't we? Uh-huh. That's one of our favorites. And so when it comes to Judas, he's kind of a real party pooper in this particular case, right? And, and, and it, in, in the text, it, it calls him a thief. And we've heard something about the thief before, haven't we? What does the thief do? The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. All right? Well, here we have Judas. Now, it's not just money, right? Thief can mean a lot of different ways that Judas is stealing things, or people like Judas, or maybe you, when you act like Judas, can be stealing things. Maybe it's money, but it can also be joy. Somebody will try to steal your joy. Or it could be glory. Maybe you yourself, in certain circumstances, try to steal the credit or the acclaim or the attention i.e. the glory that belongs to Jesus alone. 
Ooh, that gets, well, that gets a little bit closer to the heart. And the thief can also steal, or at least try to steal, our confidence. You know, we might, we might have grown up or we might have come to Christ later in life and we might have a robust confidence in knowing who Jesus is. And then we're surrounded by a world that tries to steal that away from us, right? And so the, the question I guess I would ask you is, are you counting coins or counting on Christ? When it comes to Judas, are you counting coins or counting on Christ? Because it's so easy for us to put our hope and our faith and our trust in something other than Jesus and count on that. All the while, it looks like, I mean, Judas, the way he's asking this question makes him seem like, oh, of course, why aren't we doing this? But his motivations are not what they seem. Sometimes we fall into that too, where we can start counting coins instead of counting on Christ. Now, when I was just talking about this idea of this thief that's, that's stealing our confidence, stealing our joy. I especially want to just take a moment. We have a lot of younger people here. And right now, regardless of where you're at in your life, you are going to continue to hear this sort of trendy phrase. Uh, I hear it all the time. I deal with it all the time. And it, it goes something like this. Oh, I'm deconstructing my faith. I'm deconstructing my faith. That's, that's the big thing. You see this over and over again. You've got even celebrities that have been given a platform that, that then go through this deconstruction process. And on the other side of it, then they come out using that same platform they've been given to announce to the world, I no longer identify as a Christian. Okay, I want to give you some permission and some warnings and some conclusions right here. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to have doubts. It's okay to wonder, well, I'm not so sure about this, that, and the other. It's okay to explore that. Matter of fact, you can deconstruct your preferences. You can deconstruct your experiences. You, you can even deconstruct unhealthy things that have happened to you in the church. You can deconstruct uh, harmful traditions that maybe you've been a part of. You can deconstruct all of those things, but you cannot deconstruct the gospel. You cannot deconstruct the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is indestructible. Okay, so we tend to focus on secondary issues rather than the primary issues. We tend to make not the main thing into the main thing. And then that's what we pursue. That's what we argue. That's what we're known for. That's what starts to identify us. And all the while, Jesus stands beside us and says, no, you're missing the point. So there's nothing wrong with deconstructing harmful, harmful experiences, harmful things that maybe have happened to you. There's nothing wrong with asking questions, but you have to start by knowing that the gospel itself is indestructible. And maybe you're asking, well, okay then, 
what is the gospel? That, that's really the question we're getting at because we have tried to turn all different kinds of secondary issues into the gospel. We've tried to say, well, the gospel is just too simplistic and, and it seems too easy and it can't be that way. And so therefore uh, it must mean uh, more about this. And we go, boom, we get right into rules, regulations, how we're going to try to define the way that we're, blah, 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 it's, just, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. And all the while, the primary issue, the main thing sits off to the side the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul was dealing with exactly the same thing with the church in Corinth. That church was a mess. Guess what? We're a mess. I'm not just talking about Grace Church. I'm talking about the, the human institution or organization that we call church. That is not a reflection of the gospel, folks. That's a reflection of our fallen nature. The things that we do, the ways that we make ourselves or others obstacles, to Jesus being able to reach other people. This is a huge temptation. It's a reflection of our fallen nature. And we don't have to live that way. We don't have to. If we make the main thing the main thing and keep it there and keep the priority and keep being in the presence of God, then we start with the right motivations. It's not based on us. It's based on what God has done for us. In Jesus, And so Paul writes this, letters, or writes this letter uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians because he was dealing with the same kind of thing with the church in Corinth. So I just want you to listen to this. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received on, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the wor word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. In other words, the most important thing, the primary thing, the main thing. This is what he's saying, you have taken your stand on. Ready for this? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. Now he comes to you and he invites you in to this new life with him. That death cannot arrest or condemn or silence. Are you living in light of that truth today? Is that the main thing? Or is something else the main thing? We have to continue to ask ourselves this because we get confused about grace. The grace, this is later in uh, verse 10 in 1 Corinthians 15, but the grace of God that was with me, whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. It's a call and a reminder back to the very basic, the essence, the foundation. Of what does it actually mean to be a Christian? Well, it means surrendering your life and in exchange, he gives you his. You give him your life of sin and shortcomings and all of the ways that you don't live up to the standard. And you walk away from that and you walk out in faith knowing that in return, he's given you his very life that lasts forever. It's an amazing promise. Are we living as children of that promise? 
or are we living as children of the flesh? Well, the crowd in verse 9. Let's take a look at the crowd. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jew, Jewish people found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. Now, this is kind of like, this is a big attraction, right? I mean, if somebody is raised from the dead, you and I are going to take a ticket on that one, right? I, I'm going to go see this for myself. So if I'm anywhere near in the proximity and I hear that this has happened, I'm going to see it. So he's drawing a big crowd. This, of course, is what makes people uh, very nervous from the religious leaders. Uh, all, look at all, this is getting us nowhere. Now he's out there raising people from the dead. We got to put a stop to this. But yet, we have this crowd that's coming around. They're, they're curious. They want to be a part of it. They want to see what's going on. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're curious. Maybe the Lord is drawing. I don't, if you're here today, I don't believe it's by accident. I believe it's actually the work of the Holy Spirit who draws the church together. Big C church. The big C church together. So I don't believe it's a coincidence or an accident that you are here right now. But if this is the first time you're here, and you are not a Christian yet, and you're just checking it out, then what I'm about to say is not directed at you. It's, it's not directed at you. But if you've been coming to church for a long time, if you've been claiming to be a follower of Jesus for a long time, then my question for you is this. Are we part of the curious crowd just looking to consume? Because that's what we're trained to do as Western, uh, modern American culture continues to prove over and over again. We are primed to consume. And we can fall into that same pattern when we come together as a body of Christ. And so is the Lord, you heard earlier, uh, all of these different opportunities we have as far as participating other than just coming to this large gathering. We have small groups. You can participate financially. But if you're just coming and consuming, then I believe the Lord wants more for you in relationship to him. And so don't, don't hold out. Instead, get involved. Get involved. There's lots of different ways to do that. And then when it comes to Mary, I've already talked about this with Mary. She pours out this perfume. And maybe when we hear that, it talks about how it was a year's worth of wages. Put that into your own perspective for a minute and think about dumping thousands and thousands of dollars out on the feet of Jesus. Not only that, it gets crazier. She takes her hair down. That's a big red flag right there. Culturally speaking, that did not happen. The only time their women would take down their hair was in the presence of their husband. Here we have this particular situation where Mary is overcome with worship of this Savior. Mary is the model disciple in this particular case. Isn't that amazing? This woman, Mary, wiping the feet of Jesus with her hair. And again, this contrast between what we heard at the beginning of chapter 11. Remember, Jesus comes on the scene. He waited extra long to make sure Lazarus was good and dead before he showed up. Then he shows up on the scene and he wants to get close to the tomb. Anybody remember what Martha said to him? Oh, you don't want to go there. He stinketh. 
Okay? So we've got the contrast here of the stench of death. The stench of death. And now Mary is pouring out this amazing, expensive, good-smelling perfume. In worship, in gratitude, in thankfulness. And so when we think about our response to the grace, the abundance and the overwhelming extravagance of what Jesus has given to us, for us, how do we respond to that? How do we respond to that? Are we pouring out our lives in worship of him? And so again, I will say the, the generosity of Jesus should be reflected in how we respond to him and it should permeate the relationships that we have with other people in the world. Can we say that's true for us? Or do we feel right now in this moment like I do that the Holy Spirit has got some work to do in my heart? The only way the work gets done is spending the time in the presence of Jesus and asking, Lord, what would you have me do? How can you mold and shape me to be more like your son? This amazing thing that Mary did is not something that we soon forget. All of us know about this and all of us talk about this, at least at, at some degree. And if you're not a Christian, you've likely even heard about it. And, and Jesus actually had made that promise in, in the different account in Mark chapter 14, verse nine. He actually says, truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she, Mary, has done will also be told in memory of her. In other words, he's trying to tell us, be like Mary. Respond to me like Mary responded to me. Worship me with abundance and extravagance. Not counting coins and counting the cost, but counting on the promises of Christ and trusting and believing that they're true. And so I want to I want to talk about a way that we can respond to that even right here and now. We have two people that are already scheduled to be baptized today. We did baptisms a couple weeks ago and we had so many people that wanted to be baptized that praise the Lord, we've got more today. So we've got two people that are already scheduled. We've got uh, Claudia uh, and, and we also have Kara and they're going to be coming up here in just a moment and we're going to hear a little bit of their, their testimony before we baptize them. But then after that, we're going to sing a song and during that song, same thing that I offered last time. If today you feel like today is the day you take a stand, today is the day you publicly declare your faith in Jesus, then don't let anything stand in your way of being baptized today. We have shorts, we have t-shirts, we have towels. I want to talk to you back in this corner during the song that we're going to sing together after the, the testimonies here. Come back and see me and do not let anything stand in your way. So we already got the clothing thing covered. Let's think about what other objections uh, we might have. Well, what if you say, well, yeah, I was baptized as an infant, so uh, I, I, this is not something that I need. Okay, let me just dismiss. I was baptized as an infant too, okay? This is what we're doing here. We are proclaiming the faith that we have in Jesus in a public way 
so that we're taking a stand and going public with that faith and letting the world, even when the world comes to us and says, well, you know, it's going to happen. People will try to steal your joy. But if today is your day, and today is the day that you feel like the Holy Spirit is nudging you and prompting you to be baptized, to make that public declaration of your faith, then don't let anything stand in your way. I will meet you back there in the corner in just a few moments and we'll do that. But as we get ready to hear from uh, Kara and from Claudia, uh, would you just pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gift of grace and mercy, of new life, of extravagant abundance in you. Lord, we are oftentimes at a loss for words because we're in awe of your goodness. And so, Lord, now, as people proclaim that faith, the faith that you have given us as a gift that we might cling to you and know you and follow you, Lord, would you just fill this place with your spirit in such a way that we smell the good fragrance of the gospel, the best news of all. We thank you and we praise you for who you are in Jesus' name. Amen.